is a it's in Psalm 56. That's where we're going to be spending most of our time. Famous last words in Psalm 56. Uh, and I want to read the superscription above verse one. A miktam of David when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Now, what I'm, this is actually going to be a two-part presentation. And before we get into the psalm, I want to give you some background on this. One of the things that we often just overlook or is just slide by as we read the Hebrew scriptures is there is a lot, of course, we all understand there's prophecy. There are direct prophecies in the scripture. Isaiah 53, I mean, Isaiah 53 is a description of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ and its significance. And there is no place in the New Testament that is any more clear and detailed as far as the significance of the and effect of the death of Christ as all we uh, is in Isaiah 53 700 years before Jesus is born all we like sheep have gone astray and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all I mean that's just part of 12 verses that is a detailed explanation of Christ's sufferings and the significance and effect of his death and we see that we well that's up, up, that's a prophecy. I, uh, Micah five two O Bethlehem. We've seen it on your on your Christmas cards. O Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among all the villages of Judah, from out of you shall come forth one who is to be ruler among my people, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting. That's an obvious prophecy about the birthplace of the Lord Jesus. But there's also prophecy in the form of patterns. You see this in the life of David very much. You see, Joseph, we were talking about this uh, just two or three of us before uh, most of you showed up, Derek and Stephen and I. Uh, Joseph, Joseph was rejected by his brothers. So was David, so was Jesus. There was an episode in Mark's gospel where David, where Jesus' brothers came to take, drag him away because he is beside himself. He's insane. His own brothers, his half-brothers, didn't come to faith in Christ until after his resurrection. So far as we know, they are the only unbelievers that Jesus appeared to following his resurrection. The author of the book of James, the letter of James, is, his, is Jesus' half-brother, the son of Joseph and Mary following the birth of Jesus. Jude was another half-brother of Jesus. But he was rejected by his brothers. So was Joseph. So was David. In what leads up to this episode, David... A miktam of David, and when the Philistines captured him in Gath. Now, I'm going to describe the, the history that leads up to this event. He, David actually writes this psalm, believe it or not, while he is in the custody of the Gathites, the Philistines. Gath was a Philistine city. Who's the most famous guy ever to come out of Gath? Goliath. Where is David? He's in Gath. He's in Goliath's hometown. What's going on? Now, I'm going to lay out a pattern for you. Now, think as I lay this pattern out, who else fulfills this pattern? David 
Why is he in Gath? He has fled from Jerusalem. He has fled from Saul, the king of the Jews, who's trying to kill him because Saul has just looked at David. He doesn't have a prophetic word on this. He's just looked at David. God has already told Saul, you are not going to have, your dynasty is ending with you. It's going to be a one-man dynasty. You will not have a descendant taking the throne. Well, Saul wasn't happy with that. And it wasn't but a few years later, here is this young man, David, that shows up who kills Goliath. And he becomes part of Saul's administration, and everything he does is solid gold. I mean, he is doing a great job, both as a military leader. Anything he touches is off-the-scale successful. And Saul is looking at David if there is ever proof to me that this is the guy that God has selected to succeed me, it's got to be this guy. And so Saul tries to kill David personally. David was playing his harp, singing to Saul. Saul picks up his spear and tries to kill David right there in the throne room. David has to dodge, and this, and this spear lodges in the wall. I mean, finally... He is at home with his wife, Saul's second daughter, Michael, when Saul sends a hit team after David. And so David, Michael, makes up a dummy to put in the bed. They've come to kill David, and she says, oh, he's sick because he didn't show up for some banquet he was expected to come to. And so he is a, he's already left Jerusalem. He's escaped, but she lies to them and says, oh, he's sick. He's in bed. And it wasn't until a day or two later they came and they found it was a dummy in the bed. But he has left his Jewish persecutor, Saul. He goes to the tabernacle. And he says to the high priest, I need a weapon. Do you have any weapons here in the tabernacle, this place to worship God? Oh, yeah, we've got that sword of Goliath that you used to take his head off, remember? You knocked him in the head and he went down. He Actually, Goliath wasn't dead. He was just knocked out. Probably would need some big-time surgery. David pulls, comes up and pulls out Goliath's own sword and takes off his head and holds it up so everybody can see. But that sword ended up in the tabernacle. Oh, yeah, here's the sword of Goliath. Well, there's none like that. I'll take that. And then what does he do? He goes to Gath, Goliath's hometown. Like, nobody's going to recognize that sword. <laughs> nobody's going to recognize him. Do you think there were Philistines that had actually gotten close enough to David that they could recognize him? I would say so. And he goes to Gath. Now, if you read the narrative in Samuel and Chronicles, it doesn't say that God sent him there. It doesn't say whose idea it was. I mean, can we say beyond dumb? And yet that's exactly what he chose to do. As he writes this psalm, he's in the, they've recognized him. They've got him in their custody. So he goes from the Jewish persecutor. He's now in the hand of the Gentiles who want to kill him. Who does that sound like? How about Jesus? 
He is arrested and taken to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, which is actually strange. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership decides, you know, we're not supposed to execute anybody. That's uh, something that the Romans are reserved from, for themselves. So, and we want Jesus to be executed. Therefore, we need to take him to the Romans. You know, that didn't bother them all the time. In Acts 7, they stoned Stephen to death. Same political situation, but it didn't, they did, didn't stop him from stoning Stephen to death and killing other people. But with Jesus, who's in charge? God. <coughs> The Jewish leadership takes him to the Gentile, Pilate. And if you read the narrative in Samuel and in Chronicles, what do you find out? How, what, what is the method? What does David do that affects his release? He, start, he goes up to the door frames of the door He starts letting the spit, the saliva, run down his beard. They bring him into Akish, the king of Gath. He's behaving in a very shameful way, acting as if he's insane. And Akish says, don't I have enough fools in my presence? This man is insane. Get him out of here. <coughs> <clears throat> probably thinking it's actually more cruel to let him live in his insanity than if we just outright killed him, kick him out of this place. And that's what they do. For years, that really bothered me. Okay, it's really nice, David, that you got free, but yuck! This is ugly, this is awful! Until about three or four years ago, the Holy Spirit went smack. Jesus went from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, into the hands of Pilate. Did Jesus experience shame? He was, the crucifixion was designed not only to be terribly painful and prolonged, it was also designed to be very shameful. To the person who was crucified. You know, in our crucifixes, we've got Jesus up there with a strategically placed piece of cloth that crosses privates. That wasn't there. He was crucified, as were the thieves on both sides of him, as every other person who was ever crucified. He was crucified naked. It was designed to be as shameful and humiliating as the Romans could possibly because every single person who was crucified was designed to be a lesson to anybody else who might even be considering rebellion against Rome. That's why in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, Rome is that beast that is so wicked, that is so intense. There is no beast in all of nature to compare it to, and it grinds the opposition with its feet to nothing. And the Roman Empire lasted many centuries. Why? Because they did that. Century after century, you didn't even, if you, they even thought you were had a mindset of rebellion, you were done. So Jesus was shamed as well as going through all of the sufferings. But what was the outcome for Jesus? 
Can we say he found deliverance? <laughs> he came out of that tomb three days later. And so I just want you to see that prophetic pattern that surrounds this psalm. But now as we look at the psalm, we're going to see what David prayed. And I find this to be really a fantastic psalm. Verse 1, he's in the custody of the Gathites. They know who he is. They've got to total control. He's probably in chains. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. Well, this isn't new stuff for David. He's, Saul's tried to kill him more than once. Again, as we were in our former conversation, uh, when uh, Stephen and Derek and I were, you know, when David, when Samuel went to Bethlehem and said to Jesse, uh, bring your sons together because God has selected one of your sons. He's going to be the next king, and I need to anoint him. Saul, or excuse me, Jesse called in seven sons. God said no seven times. Well, Jesse, do you have any more sons? Well, we've got the one we keep out with the sheep. David had already been rejected. He was odd man out in his own family already. He's brought in, and God says, that's my man. David had experienced rejection already more than once in his life. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. In fact, if you read through the Psalms, you read through the Psalms of David, it is absolutely mind-numbing how often David is praying for God to defend him against those who are plotting against him. Not just before he became king, at, even after he became king. He, is, he still has, he, he's on the throne, and he still has people plotting against him, trying to betray him. The height of that was his own son, his own son Absalom, with the conspiring of David's right-hand man, Ahithophel. David's top advisor with Ahithophel, and he was conspiring with Absalom to overthrow David. Towards the end of his reign, David was facing this throughout his life. Vince? What, what Psalm, are you on? Psalm, I'm sorry, 56. Psalm 56. I thought I told you. Okay. Verse 2, my enemies would hound me all day. There are many who fight against me, O Most High. Who are you? You are O Most High. One of the things, in fact, I've got some of these over in my office, if you'd like to have some. I've got a list of the names of God. I keep it in the back of my Bible. What are we, how are we supposed to pray according to God's promises and God's own names? When we're, we pray in the name of God, what are we doing? He's got the, this is his reputation. His name is his reputation. One of his 
state one of the statements about God that declares his reputation is he is almost high. What God can compete against this God? No gods. In fact, one of the names for God is El Shaddai. We translate it Almighty God. But the literal, tra literal translation is God of the mountains. Why? Because all where do the pagan gods hang out? On the mountaintops. If you were in ancient Greece and you asked some ancient Greek, where do we go to? Where do we need to go to find Zeus and all the other gods? Oh, they're up on. They hang out on top of the Mount of, of Mount of Olympus. All and that's why the pagans worshipped on the hilltops and the mountaintops. That's where their gods hung out. But he is El Shaddai. He's God of the mountains. He is God of gods. He is above them. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God dwells in the heavens, not on the mountaintops. He dwells in the heavens. He dwells in the heavens and does all he pleases. These gods are small potatoes. He's, most, he's the most high God. There are many who fight against me, oh, most high. What gives me stability? My God is the most high God. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. What's my default? As a Christian, when I get challenged, what's my default? I will trust in God. As God's people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and the instant you come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, your default should be, I'm going to trust God. Satan's trying to push you the other direction. Your walking in the Spirit default is, I will trust in God. What's David doing? I'm going to trust in God. What David is saying, and he says this over and over and over and over again in his Psalms, this is a choice David made years before. Whenever I am threatened, my instant response, I will trust in God. Not I will try to figure this out and, and, and create my own solution. No, I will trust in God. I will trust in God. I will trust in God. That's my pattern. That's what I'm choosing to do. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in God. In God, I will praise his word. Why does he say I will praise his word? Because David's depending on his word. David has those precious and magnificent promises that he is calling on. Whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? David! You're in Gath. You're in chains. You're in their custody. What do you mean? What, do you, what can they do to you? I don't take counsel from my chains. I don't take counsel from their threats. I don't take counsel from that. I take counsel from God's promises. He is God is not only God in Jerusalem. He's God in Gath. I will not be afraid of Do you think this makes a testimony? When you're standing before your enemies and you're not quaking in your boots, <laughs> instead, you're trusting God 
That is a powerful testimony for the. Look at what what the Sanhedrin. After they spent all this time trying to get to at least two witnesses who agreed together against bringing an accusation against Jesus, and they couldn't do it. Finally, in frustration, I mean, he what has Jesus said up to that point? Nothing. Not one single word. And in frustration, the high priest says to Jesus, Are you or are you not the Christ, the Son of the living God? Now, we translate it, it is as you say. And that's an accurate translation. But in the Greek language, it's really a phrase meaning the equivalent of, You said it, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. And then the high priest just tears his robe, blasphemy, blasphemy. What do you mean blasphemy? You've just been citing in this trial all the evidence of why he just told you the truth. Then he goes before Pilate, and Pilate cannot find a single thing wrong. And he has not said one word. And finally, Pilate, in frustration, he's used guys who are candidates for crucifixion, he's used to having them melting in front of him, quaking in their sandals. And Jesus isn't. Finally, in frustration, Pilate says to him, Don't you know I have the power to crucify you or to free you? Speak to me. You would have no power if it had not been given you from heaven. That's what David knows. That's what we should know. Nothing can harm us. Last Sunday, I used the illustration of George Washington. When he was during the French and Indian War, he is in, in the British Army as they are marching west. And uh, General Bradford, who is the British general, he decides, okay, the best way for us to do this, we know we got more troops and more e- better equipment than those French and Indians. So what we're going to do, we're just going to march west and uh, we're just going to overwhelm them. We're going to actually just parade in. Well, the French and Indians were waiting for them. They, they did this big ambush. They, sh- I mean, they just demolished. I mean, they hammered the British Army. It was a big defeat for the British. Every single officer was mounted on a horse. Every single officer was shot off their horse, except one. A guy by the name of George Washington. And several years later, an Indian chief who was part of that attack on the British said, we fired at him and fired at him and fired at him. And we, he said, I'm going to tell you something. We knew when that battle was over, God himself was protecting him. And when after the battle was over, Washington, when he dismounted, he opened up his coat and musket balls just fell out of his coat. If God says you can't be harmed, you can't be harmed. There's an excellent book, came out about 2004, uh, desperately trying to remember the name of it, written by Kerry Cash, the grand, grand nephew of Johnny Cash. He was a Navy chaplain assigned to the Marine Battalion that was sent into Baghdad when we attacked Iraq. And the bad guys were waiting for him. 
they were given directions, you're to go into Baghdad, and at this intersection you're supposed to turn right, and that'll lead you to a palace of Saddam Hussein, and that's where we want you to go. And the problem is the directions were wrong. Yes, you get to that intersection, turn right, but it was really, really, really hard right. So you could go this way or you could go this way, and they just went that way instead of where the palace was. And so for hours, this Marine battalion, about 1,200 Marines, is milling around in downtown Baghdad. And the bad guys were waiting for them. They're shooting rocket-propelled grenades at them. They're firing at them. There were Marines that had bad guys stand right in front of them and emptying their AK-47s right into those Marines to no effect. AK uh, rocket grenade, rocket propelled grenades fired right at marine vehicles that the grenade went over the vehicle and then resumed its initial flight path and killed the bad guys on the other side of the street. One man was killed who was ready to go. A sergeant who was ready to go. Everybody knew this man. He was a vital, vital, vital Christian. And he was the only casualty in this hours of being milling around Baghdad and before they finally found their way to that palace. Kerry Cash got in there the next day. He couldn't go in with them because he wasn't in a hardened vehicle. He got in there the next day into Saddam Hussein's palace. He got there. And he walks in, and here's this black Marine that he had baptized about three months before. And this guy looked at him and said, Chaplain, we should all be dead. And all the Marines standing around him were nodding their heads in agreement. But what you told us about Psalm 91, a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come nigh you. That is, was our experience yesterday. He later talked to a Marine major who was the, the signals officer, and his job was to make sure that every vehicle was marked so you could identify it from a distance. And it's identifying numbers on it. Well, they were at a, in a hot firefight as this one intersection. And he looked up, and there was an overpass over their heads filled with AAVs, none of which were marked. Well, he was the guy who made sure every vehicle was marked. <laughs> so he knew every vehicle that came in with them was marked. But these are AAVs, same vehicles they have, but they're, none of them are marked. And they're giving them covering fire. He went back there two days later to that intersection, looked north, south, east, west. There was no overpass. He said, I know what I saw. You draw your own conclusions. Well, after Kerry Cash talked to that black Marine, he went into another part of the palace, and here's a whole bunch of Marines, or here's an AAV with the ramp down, and this guy who joined the Marines, he was 28 years old, he joined the Marines to get away from drugs. And he's sitting there on this ramp, and he's just kind of staring off into space, and Kerry Cash could see this isn't good. So he walked up and touched the guy on the shoulder and tears immediately started pouring down his face. And he said, why would God save me? Why would God save me? I know what I am. 
And then when he said that, every Marine in the room turned and watched Carrie Cash lead that man into the kingdom. If God says you can't be touched, you can't be touched. And it doesn't matter what the, pers- what the diagnosis is or what the situation is. God is God. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear. What can flesh do to me? All day, they twist my words. He's not talking about Philistines here. He's talking about back in Jerusalem. All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. This is the men who were the hit squad that came after him. They mark my steps. When they lie in wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity? Lord, will you let them get away with this? In anger, cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottles. Does God care about my pain? He saves up every tear. Every tear we ever shed will be compensated for. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. This I know. Not this I hope. This I know. Because God is for me. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. His promises, his promises, his promises, his self-declarations that I'm supposed to hang my hat on. In God, I've put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That's the second time he said this in this brief psalm. What's David's orientation? When I am threatened, I will not be afraid. My default is I will not be afraid. You can threaten me and try to intimidate all day long. I'm not going to be afraid of you. In God I put my trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That tells us this is, this is a basic proposition of David's life throughout his life. From the time of witness to us from the time of Goliath to the very end. And I'm going to let you look this up on your own. Read, when you get home, read Psalm 3. When David has fled from Absalom out of Jerusalem. And he is out in the wilderness. You know who's with him? The palace, the palace guard is with him. Do you know who the palace guard was of David? I'd love this. The palace guard of David, and not only for him, but throughout his dynasty, was the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and the Gittites. Cherith and Peleth, Gittites are people from Gath. 
Cherith and Peleth were two Philistine villages. When David finally got tired of being pursued by Saul for so many years in Judah, he went over to Philistia, and they said, this guy's really good at this ruling thing. They put him in charge of Philistia, and two of the villages in the area he was giving, made governor of were Cherith and Peleth. The palace guard of David, when he became a king of Israel, they were all Philistines. Many generations later, when, it, when Athaliah had been ruling, she thought she had killed all the descendants of David. But they had what one little boy had been saved. And then the high priest brought him out, and the palace guards surrounded this little boy. Who were they? The Cherethites, the Pelethites, and the Gittites. They took a personal oath of allegiance to David. Why? Because I think these Philistines looked at David while he was ruling in that area where Cherith, and they said, you know, this guy's got it together. This guy's God is real. Dagon, our God, isn't, has never really performed well for us. <laughs> and they took a personal oath of allegiance to David and his dynasty. Right up till the Babylonian captivity they were there. What does he say? In God I've put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Vows made to you are binding upon me, O God. I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. What's he talking about? In the law of Moses, talking about vows here, in the law of Moses, there is actually a segment set in place where if you get in real trouble, I mean, your life is on the line, what you can do is you can make a vow. You can say, God! You get me out of this mess. And when I get the chance to go to the tabernacle, later the temple, I will present a thank offering to you. I will call a banquet and I will give a public testimony about what you've done to save me. I vow to do that. And by the way, this is pretty cool. Uh, when they did this, they would bring a bull. A bull would be sacrificed. That's a big animal. Now, this is proof that God is a Texan. The right hind quarter and the brisket were given to the priest. <laughs> right? Okay, we got that. The rest of that bull had to be eaten in two days. You're going to invite a lot of people. You got to eat a whole bull, other than the right hand quarter and the brisket, you got to eat that whole bull in two days. You're going to invite a lot of people. And while they're banqueting, you stand up and you tell them about the deliverance that God gave you. And so you could make them, this is in the law of Moses, you could make that vow and then fulfill it. David keeps that vow, it's Psalm 34. It's Psalm 34. Look that up, too, on your own time. It's Psalm 34. And the superscription of that says, this is the David fulfilling the vow he made because of his deliverance from the Gathites. And that's Psalm 34. 
vows made to you are binding upon me. Lord, I've made a vow. You get me out of this mess, and I will, when I have the opportunity, I'll go to the tabernacle. I'll present the thank offering, the bull for a thank offering, and I will give a public testimony to you. I will render praises to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Have you not kept my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? He writes this whole thing while he's in their custody. What's David's orientation? I know what my God is like, and he keeps his promises. David had a special promise from God. When he was anointed by Samuel, you're going to become the next king following the death of Saul. He can't die. He can't die. God's promise is I'm going to become king. So can the Gathites kill me? No. I'll be gone. I'll be out of here. I'm delivered. Was he? Yeah, he was. We've got exactly the same God. He is just as loyal, just as faithful to us as he was to David. That must be our orientation. Walking through this world is not easy. It's not easy. But our God is our shepherd. He is our defender and our provider. You folks have any response, comments, questions? All right. Well, but he knows it because he knows God is faithful to his word. Right. His prom- God doesn't make promises for nothing right. to break them. Yeah. But it's the same for us. Yeah. One of my favorite, and if there's any, you know, you may have heard the expression a life verse. Uh, back when I was about 20 years old, the Lord just showed me Psalm 84, verses 11 and 12. And it's really become a big orientation for me. Psalm 84, 11 and 12. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I'll take that. O Lord of hosts, blesses the man who trusts in you. I'll take that. That's his promise to anybody who claims it. You know, I'm not going to specify what this issue is. I'm praying about an issue right now. Uh, 
and the Lord told me, you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm looking at a particular, particular blessing. Uh, and I said, Lord, I'm not even sure it's right for me. It's a desire of my heart. And I just said, Lord, I'm not sure. I know you promised to keep meet my needs, but here's this one particular prospect. And I said, I'm not sure it's right for me to pray for that, to pick what my blessing will be. And completely out of left field. I mean, I wasn't thinking about this at all. The Lord said to me, I let Caleb pick. When Caleb and Joshua were the only two of the 12 spies who gave a good report, and the other 10 got killed <laughs> because of their bad reports and unfaithfulness to him, it was 43 years later, they've been in the promised land for three years, and Caleb goes to Joshua and he says, I want that mountain right over there. There are three sons of Anak, the Anakim there, where they're giants. That's probably why it hadn't been conquered. Everybody's afraid to approach that place. I want that mountain, Joshua. And Joshua said, go for it. And he, he won that mountain. And the Lord reminded me, I let Caleb, I let Caleb pick. So I think you can say if God gives me a desire if I have this desire I can trust God to enable me now one of the things he also told me okay now in pursuing that desire you've got three Anakim <laughs> that you need to defeat what are the three Anakim the world the flesh and the devil because what does when you start praying for something what does Satan say to you God's not really good. God's not really loyal to you. God doesn't really love you. He's not really kind. He's not any. This is exactly what he did with Eve in the garden. He raised the issue of the goodness of God. He attacked the goodness of God. And so the world, the flesh, and the devil together with the united voice start screaming at me lies about what my God is like. And I have to do what David did. I made a decision years ago, Lord, when I am threatened, when I am intimidated, I will trust in you. I will trust in you. I will trust in you. And you just keep hitting back. And that's putting on the whole armor of God. That's using the sword of the spirit. And that's hitting back. That's hitting back. That's not allowing those voices to find a place in you. I was, I was uh, talking about myself and you earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, and I counseled with Reuben about it too, yeah. Who's in charge? Exactly. Forget about it, forget about it, yeah. because he's good and he doesn't test us above what we are able exactly anybody else Lord Jesus Christ we want to thank you that you are like what you are like that you are the faithful God
We're asking for every one of us here that the Holy Spirit would give us ear to hear, ears to hear what he's saying through his word to us and that it would become a default position in our life. It would become the center, center point of our life, what we orient around, your self-declarations, what you are like, your names, and your promises because you are just as loyal and faithful to us as to David, as to Joseph, who spent years in prison, and yet you put him within about two and a half hours from when he came out of prison. He's, about, he's the right-hand man of the Pharaoh because you are faithful. We give you praise, and we trust that that will be our life experience as well. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.